Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Jack podcast. This is the conversation I had with Professor Richard Murphy in the UK to talk about oh the economy, the societal breakdown, the scandal and the sleaze and the ineffective uh, opposition of the Labour Party under Keir Starmer uh, for 2023. Uh, Richard is a listener's favourite and when you listen to it you'll understand why. If you like what we do, if you enjoy the podcast, please join us on Patreon. It's the link in the pod that you're listening to right now. It says patreon.com forward slash tortoise Check it out. See if there's a level that you're happy to keep these shows on the road. And it's not a one-way street. You get lots of content, including a conversation we're recording in about 15 minutes with myself, Martin, and Emma D'Souza to break down the news of the week and the latest, most uh, eye-opening revelation by HSE whistleblower Shane Core. Uh, many of you will know that Martin is one of the founders of the whistleblower group and has worked with Shane for a number of months, so we will have uh, an insight in there that maybe uh, may, many of the mainstream media simply won't have because in fairness to Martin he works doggedly like that whether he's sick or not he is always there to support whistleblowers and that podcast will be out very very soon thanks for listening thanks for the support but please if you can one more time patreon.com forward slash tortoise it's the only way we keep the show on the road I won't delay any further enjoy the podcast Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and I continue to fly solo. My my colleague Martin McMahon is unwell, folks, as you well know at this stage. Uh, and I do wish him well, but I also, we all are enjoying the break, let's be honest. There's a part of us we're all enjoying, you know, less Martin, more Tony. It's all good. Okay. My, my guest here, uh, Professor Richard Murphy, is smiling because he's like, going, no, actually, Tony, the brains of the operation is not here. Richard, how are you <laughs> keeping? It's good to see you again. Well, I'm doing well, unlike Martin, and I hope he's going to get better. But um, after six months of long COVID, I finally had a month without antibiotics. So for me, I hit my desk, if you heard anything. Yeah. Um, it's wooden. And I'm just hoping that I'm on the, the real men now. The energy levels are rising. Yeah, there, there was, before we get into it, that, that was a serious amount of uh, antibiotics. You've had several, I won't say scares, but you've felt like you couldn't shift the the, the bug and we, we people go about this this brain fog it's it's bloody real isn't it you don't realize how knackering something like that is um you know i had nearly six months of this and it was just round after round of infection um infected sinusitis basically which a is pretty ghastly anyway uh but b i mean I, my body just couldn't find it off and so I was, you know, absolutely worn out by the energy expended on fighting the infections, which is why I had nine rounds of antibiotics in the end. They helped. But whenever I you know, came off the antibiotics, I was then heading back towards the next appointment with the doctor to get another lot. But it seems as though I'm following the norm of long COVID infections. And after seven to eight months, they reckon most people get better. And it looks like I'm heading that way. Look, that's great news, but it also brings me to kind of something we do want to talk about and something that's in common with both with both islands at the moment. And it is the state of our health service. It is the state of we have uh, the INMO or, or the Irish Nurse Midwives Organization talking about balloting for strike action. You have um, NHS people involved in active strike action. We know it's creaking at the seams. We know if we look up 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 at the north of the island, the, the health outcomes are the worst in all of the UK. But we've seen it all starting to tip over. We we've been talking for a long time now. Uh, we've heard two things that that 
the UK is, you know, it's really struggling post-Brexit. Um, and now the NHS is actually is actually underperforming, even though it is something that people have great pride in. Richard, how is the the the, the feeling there around the health service and, and its 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 ability to get through this this winter flu and COVID season? It's in a pretty poor state. Um, I'm married to a retired GP, so I have some contacts with the NHS, and obviously. She takes a great interest in this subject. Um, she's actually retired on grounds of ill health, um, but still in contact. And look, the point I've got is this. We've, and I've been looking at the data recently on this. We were horribly behind in the UK on the NHS, despite everything we said about it around the turn of the century. Labour put that right to their credit. By 2010, they had increased spending on the NHS from just under 5% of GDP to 7.5% of GDP, a massive injection of money, which made the NHS work at that time. But the Tories have kept it at that level or cut it since then. And if you look in terms of what's been required, they have not kept up with the changes in technology. They've struggled with changing in population because the population of the UK has grown um, mm-hmm. uh, and is still growing and it's ageing and they haven't allowed for any of those factors. And those demands have made the NHS a completely ghastly place to work. Um, and as a result, there's 130,000 vacancies and getting worse. And in any true market situation, and if the Tories were really believers in the market, they'd say if there's 130,000 vacancies and people aren't applying for them, there must be something wrong with the price we're willing to offer to get people to work for us. But no, they're adamant that it's a 2% pay rise for most people in the NHS. Completely absurd. It's not going to keep people. It's going to get worse. What we actually need to see is the UK, and I suspect this is true of Ireland, but I don't know the data as much, moving towards the European norms on spending on healthcare. Now, if we look at most countries, they're spending two plus percent more than the UK on healthcare. A country like the Netherlands is spending over three percent more on healthcare than the UK. And that's why they are creating a, a good health system and B, prosperity. I mean, you can almost link the decline in the UK's fortunes and the flatlining of real incomes and the flatlining of growth with the f- end of the investment in the NHS. Why? A very simple connection. You can't have wealth without health. Mm. It's a simple strap line, but it's an absolute fact. Because literally, you can't generate um, wealth unless you've got a healthy population. And we haven't got a healthy population. We've got 7 million people waiting for treatments in the UK. This is just dire. Um, and without spending, there's no hope. And unfortunately, and let's be blunt about this, this is not going to be solved by a Labour government. I'm spending quite a lot of time criticising Labour at the moment. I mean, People well, think well, I'm well, well, somehow well, suddenly can, becoming can, the friend of the Tories. No, I'm can not. I, can, I, can I come in on this and just say that it was not it was not um, warming. It didn't warm my heart to see Labour's Keir Starmer say, you know, let's get back to more public-private partnerships. Was it was what he said when addressing some of these concerns? When that is not what. Like that's not getting back to anything. That's um, that's continuing the the neoliberal kind of agenda of outsourcing of healthcare, and as always, the private healthcare providers take what's profitable and leave the rest to the public service. Yeah, look, we're in a situation where basically, you know, in 1997, I had hope for Tony Blair and uh, was disappointed, uh, but not by healthcare. Let's be totally honest, and not 
as well. Let's be honest with regard to his treatment, for example, of low-income families and their need for sure start and things like that. All good schemes that help no end and reduce inequality too. Keir Starmer isn't coming in promising anything like that. I'm getting my disappointment in early, if you like, because the man is A, pure neoliberal. B, with Rachel Reeves, is offering the Bank of England agenda, which is utterly destructive of the UK economy at present. C, when it comes to something like healthcare, he should be criticising the Tories and saying they're not spending enough. He doesn't. All they offer is to get rid of what's called the non-domicile rule. That may raise three billion quid extra money for the UK NHS. Let's put that in context. The UK NHS is costing something like £170 billion a year, excluding COVID measures at the present point of time. So three billion quid is, well, a drop in the ocean, isn't it? To use polite language, neither here nor there. Hardly going to change anything, less than a week's funding. So the reality is that he's just not trying to change anything. That is not going to put the NHS back on its feet. This man is dedicated to everything he's been saying in the past. Instead of blaming the Tories, which is what you'd expect the Labour Party to be doing, he's actually now, with his health minister, turned on blaming the doctors and saying, oh, it's all down to our GPs and it's all their fault and they're money grabbers and they're murky. Absolutely not reasonable comments at all absolutely total, unfair to, total nonsense and we've seen that here we've seen the, the the attempts to push through a new consultant contract without the consent of consultants let's see where that brings us we've seen a, a huge shortage of gps and like you you've seen huge vacancies because people are going off to australia or they're going off to canada yep. and they're finding there's better quality of living elsewhere and the, but what i will say in terms of the tory line how easy the open goal that labor have, have you've said because the, the Tories have used it as this as this line of saying, well, we've we've protected the NHS, and what they are saying is that, like you know, so we were spending say ten, let's just use a round figure and say ten billion a year in twenty ten, and sure we're still paying ten billion a year in twenty twenty two. We've protected the NHS, and you know that may play well as a soundbite unless someone fact checks it, you know, and that's the job of the opposition, and that's what they should be doing. Can I, that's, I suppose, one of the things... I'm going to do that fact check, by the way. I'm going to publish it in the next couple of days on my blog. Yeah, they are putting in more money than they've ever put in. In absolute terms, more money. In real terms, it's hardly an increase at all. Allowing for population, it's hardly changed whatsoever. But that ignores demographics, older, more older people, and the fact that medicine's got more complicated. And if we want it to do what medicine can do, then it's got to do that. And also the fact there's more sick people in the country now because of COVID. All of those things they're ignoring. It's just like head in the sand stuff. It's just crazy. So, so, uh, so, like, and then we get back to the actual Tories themselves and uh, the pledges of uh, Rishi Sunak. And I, I, I have to admit, I don't think there's been a more disheartening moment when I see these, you know, reducing debt, uh, stopping small boats, <laughs> pledges, to, you know, things that like you're just thinking to yourself going, they, where are we talking about housing here? Where are we talking about um, actual decreasing inequality, going after making making people's uh, living standards better? It does seem a shockingly, um, you know, look, things are going to be really bad. So let's just promise to make them uh, not as bad because we'll have maybe Christmas lights on, on everything that looks bad. I mean... He's promised to halve inflation. Inflation is going to halve in the UK this year, come hell or high water. Can we because just see, just see what inflation did in, in the States in December? It's just falling. It, it just went... 
<laughs> just yeah. it's no and it's going to do the same here because and, and, and you actually said it on this podcast in November so to give you credit you called I did. it out. yeah I've said it's going to happen. It's a mathematical certainty. And it's reinforced by the fact that not only is there a mathematical certainty that the rate of change is going to fall, but actually real prices are falling. The price of wheat, the price of oil, the price of gas, they're all back at pre-Ukraine war levels now. So we are going to see real price falls. We're going to see deflation in 2024. Now, that's hardly a challenging target then. He's going to reduce government debt. Is he? Probably not. Um, in fact, the data that I'm looking at at the moment, if we talk about real government debt in the UK, which means taking into account quantitative easing, government debt is going to go through the roof in the UK. It's not going to go down in the UK. So he's talking absolute nonsense there. We talk about small boats. He can't stop small boats by passing laws. All he can do, and in fact, I've said it before and I'm going to say it again on this podcast, the best thing way to solve that is to actually, A, have a way of applying for, um, obviously, for asylum before you reach the UK. Yeah. And B, actually, to get rid of the small boats, just give people tickets on those across-channel ferries from um, Calais to Dover and then set up a proper processing system here where people haven't had to go through the trauma of getting on a small boat to arrive and we could stop spending all the money we do actually dealing with the small boats and instead help people and determine whether they've got a right to stay or not. Remember, 75% win those cases of the right to stay. So we need to change the entire approach to that. But can I make a comment on that on that thing? Because what it's 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 always said that you know we don't have a problem as long as people who come here um, through the cr- proper channels. But the UK doesn't really have many proper channels that, that that are open to people at this stage. You know, and to go back to the health service issue, we had it. We've had in Ireland very disappointingly. We've had some. You know, we've had. People protesting at sites of where asylum seekers have been housed in temporary accommodation. We've had issues, and mostly, and it has to be said, working class communities again getting sort of picked on because they're, mm-hmm. you know, it's easier to put them there rather than put them in the well-to-do areas. And then all of a sudden, it's because let's everybody punch down, and that's a wider issue. The problem is obviously with government policy, but the comments then, you know, they're putting pressure on our health service. I think I'm right, and you can correct me. In Ireland, I know in our health service, it's about 43% of our medical professionals are non-national, to use that phrase. And in the UK, I believe it's even higher, closer to almost 50%. I'm not sure it's quite as high as that. But what I can guarantee you is if if you meet somebody who's not of British origin, i.e. born here or whatever, mm-hmm. in the anywhere in the health service, they're much more likely to be treating you than waiting ahead of you in the queue. They're vastly more likely to be the person who's treating you. Um, so this claim that there's a problem created for the health service by immigration is just nonsense. We actually are very heavily dependent upon imported staff. And one of the big concerns is actually the countries we're taking those staff away from. There is no legitimate channel for anyone to get to the UK if they do not come from um, Iran, Iraq, Syria, um, and maybe Afghanistan in some cases. Everywhere else in the world, there's no way of trying to apply for asylum here. It's impossible. Um, and therefore, the claim that people are arriving illegally because, oh, they should have applied before they got here is nonsense because there isn't a way to apply before they got here. That's just Tory lies. Um, but going back to those pledges, I mean, let's be clear, they don't meet real needs. And there's quite a lot of interesting surveying going on now about how people are fed up. But there were no mentions of the real things. Cost of living crisis, um, interest rate rises, 
Um, cost of um, childcare, which is phenomenal in the UK now, and crippling young families, difficulty of getting on the housing ladder, as you say, student debt costs, which are now becoming crippling because their interest rates on those are going through the roof. All these things which you think they could talk about to try and attract real voter interest. Nah, forget them. We're going to pass legislation to turn back small votes um it's just crazy no green mention at all of course nothing to do no with the environment. Not, not one mention about the environment which is just staggering like like if you're talking about boats small boats you cannot have that and then not think about the, glo- the global climate emergency that will see estimates up to a billion people on the move because of climate catastrophes I mean, unless we deal with climate change one of the biggest humanitarian crises of all time is going to develop which is people fleeing flooding basically we have to, well, and heat, the combination of those two is going to drive people to move um, against their, you know, they won't have a choice. I mean, we don't have a way of controlling that. They've got to move to somewhere to live. And unless we're going to actually say, well, you have to die where you are, I hope we don't, we have to rethink how we handle this humanitarian crisis coming our way. But nothing about the green issues at all from Rishi Sunak whatsoever. This is a completely disabled government. It's one reason why basically I've given up on attacking the Tories. Because you know they are absolutely knackered. They're not going to be able to do anything for the next 18 months or so, maybe two years while they're in office. They can't appear to pass legislation. They're giving up anything contentious they were planning. You know, they were going to privatise Channel 4. They've given that up. They were going to do an online safety bill, which included a lot of nonsense. They're giving that up. They're putting forward this anti-strike bill, which they say is going to guarantee minimum sta- uh, service standards when people are on strike, which is ludicrous because they can't guarantee them on the days when people aren't on strike. In fact, the minimum service standard they're demanding when people are on strike is going to be considerably higher than they can actually offer themselves right now so you know this is crazy stuff um <laughs> so, and it's so not going like, to get through it's that. like it, it's like saying in the education system that doesn't have enough teachers that you can't ha- you can't uh you can't open the school unless you have actually don't say that because we don't have that number of teachers yet as it is it's yeah it's precisely it's, i mean it's just literally it's walter mitty fantasy stuff um if anybody remembers walter mitty i'm old yeah, enough to, yeah 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 and you know this stuff um <laughs> So they are so ludicrous um, and so inept and they cannot deliver on those five promises. You know, the one on growth is just beyond their reach. It's just not there. So if we talk about the fact that they're going to fail, then we have to look at what Labour's going to do. And at the moment, Labour is, I say, failing us really badly. I mean, the classic gaffe. Yesterday morning, Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, said on television, somebody who's got internal bleeding should be able to self-refer themselves without going to see a GP to a specialist. And I um, just looked at um, my wife and said, um, WTF is he talking about? Because if somebody's got internal bleeding and you really mean internal bleeding, they should probably be in an accident in the emergency department now um, as a matter of crisis medicine. And they should never go to the GP. They need absolutely urgent treatment. I was delighted to see lots of well-known GPs on Twitter supported my view. And this has become commonplace. Yeah, the man is talking nonsense. Um, and yet we're hearing this on the NHS. We're hearing absolute drivel on the whole view of what he's going to do in office. He's not going to open the checkbook, he says, which I think is an interesting metaphor because I'm not quite sure what the situation is in Ireland now. But I suspect that most young people in Ireland have never seen a checkbook like most young people in the UK have never yes, seen very, a checkbook. Very, very I mean, true. 
My sons have never had a checkbook. They don't know what the hell a checkbook is. I mean, I've got piles of them sitting beside me because I still run businesses, but they don't exist. I mean, even then, I hardly ever use one. Um, it's just not known now. So what is he talking about? This man is out of touch with reality, out of touch with the economic need. And so I'm getting it in now and saying, look, for Christ's sake, folks, realise that we are in deep, deep trouble here. Now, But, but to say that we are in deep trouble, that's kind of like we've seen the the estimates now coming out you know that that somebody like was the one thing that's saying that the the lack of growth amounted to say 35 billion and the amount that the additional uh, exchequer had to put in was 35 billion and they have to raise these extra things you know it's 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 a vicious circle but there's no there's no grown-ups in the room richard no one is like they're still not ready to have that conversation about whether what the future relationship with the eu looks like I mean, you know, there's talk of the 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 the, the ridiculous, the ludicrous, and always, always um, problematic uh, bill on Northern Ireland and the protocol that that seems to just to fall over in the next few hours, anyway. Um, well, that so, one's all hanging on the edge as we're talking at the moment. Yeah. I mean, who knows whether there's really any progress or not? I mean, people can make noises, but I'm not quite sure that it's really happening. Um, Keir Starmer is saying. We can never talk about a relationship of the sort we have with the EU again. He refuses to talk about joining the single market again. He refuses to talk about joining the customs union. And of course, doing those two things would solve the problems in Northern Ireland completely, basically. Um, you know, they would make it possible to have those flows. And he could therefore argue for a United Kingdom, which is virtually impossible without it. Um, there's this complete denial that it's possible for people to change their minds on Brexit. And there is, you know, massive buyer's regret amongst those who voted for Brexit now. Of course, the hardcore are still there. I'm not pretending that there aren't still people who are in favour of Brexit. Everybody from Lord Frost onwards, um, just don't follow his Twitter feed unless you want to go insane. Um, cause he really is bonkers. I mean, I don't think we're going to be at any risk of being sued by saying that. Um, I think he's insane um, because he's just talking rubbish about Brexit. And, you know, it's all down to Remainers spoiling the opportunities. But the reality is we have to have somebody who's grown up in the room. And we also have to have somebody who's grown up and understands something that Lord Keynes once said. Lord Keynes was, in my opinion, the greatest economist of the 20th century. He basically thought out the system that gave us post-war prosperity which arrived in the UK after the Second World War and really hit Ireland from 1960 onwards. It took a little longer uh, to get the change of system going in Ireland. But from 1960 onwards, we saw growth. And really, this is not this is the foundation of Irish wealth, not the Celtic tiger. You know, everything changed when governments realised that they could intervene and drive growth. And what he said was, we can afford anything we can actually do. In other words, if we can run an NHS, because we've got the people to do it, then we can afford it. If we've got teachers who could teach but choose not to because we will not pay them enough, we could afford to have a proper education system. We can afford anything we can actually do. And it's a really powerful idea because what it says is that a government can generate wealth by public sector as well as private sector employment. But there's this complete denial amongst political parties. And this is in both islands we're talking mm -hmm. about here. Um, almost most parties are denying the, re the fact that the public sector, which is where more spending is needed now overall, is capable of generating wealth. And one of the reasons why that's the case, and I spent ages trying to think, why do they think this? And one of the reasons comes down to 
gross domestic product. Now, that's our measure of our national income, our well-being. And it's what politicians obsess about when they talk about growth. But if you have somebody work in the private sector, they don't only add to growth by the amount they're paid, but if they work for a company that makes a profit, and if they work for a company that doesn't make a profit, by and large, they'll be out of business soon, so they'll have to move somewhere else. They also create the profit. Now, this is what somebody called Karl Marx would sort of basically be calling the labour theory of value. And I'm actually not a Marxist, but I sure as heck have read Marx and I have a lot of sympathy with on these issues. Marx is a good economist. Mm-hmm. And the point was the GDP measures both the value of the labour and the profit. But when we come to the public sector, apparently teachers don't create any value for anybody else. They only generate the value of their pay. They're just scroungers who get paid. There's no value left over for society. So the well people that they create or the people who they liberate to go to work because they make them well don't count. There's no credit to the public sector worker for that. Or the fact that everybody listening to this podcast has to say thank you to a teacher somewhere down the line who gave us the ability to actually think about these issues, understand them, debate them, disagree about them and everything else is the person we've got to thank for that added value as well. But no credit for that is given in GDP. So we have this whole system that is rigged against the creation of value in the public sector. But that's the place where we need growth now. Yeah, and and, and I suppose I want to bring that into stark reality for people. Just think of the last few months in Ireland where we've seen talk of we need, you know, a, a, a... Pay claim by nurses, a pay claim, a pay claim by the by these public servants, a pay claim by the you know uh, we've seen the UK where people are saying a pay claim by by rail rail workers, in and and yet we were told by our own finance minister that we need to lift the uh, the ceiling for bankers' pay. There was no pay claim. We just needed to lift the things because these were we need to attract top talent. <laughs> yes. I, you know, it's it's isn't it how it's framed, Richard? It's crucial that we look at this and parse it and say, well, actually, during the pandemic, it wasn't the the, uh, the guy who was who was an asset manager who was who was keeping the food on the shelves or the hospitals open. Far no. from it. And yet here we are back in, and the language is very clear. As you said, these these are value added. These are vocational. The vocational people they just have to they don't add any they don't add any value. Whereas the guy who apparently can go into a job in 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 a finance house, it, 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 take advantage of high interest rates with T bills or the likes of this is is a genius apparently, Richard. Well, and it's just not true. But they can play around with very large numbers and take a very small margin off them, which still comes out to be a very big number, and therefore claim to be ultra clever. Now. I've worked in accountancy. I do not create the value, and I really will not claim to have created value in the way that a lot of public sector workers have. Um, and I've seen the public sector. I've worked in uh, governance of pub, uh, public sector organizations as well. Um, I have created jobs. I think that's value added. Um, I've created quite a lot of jobs in my life. But I still think that the claim that the financier is somehow worth more than the doctor, the nurse, the school teacher, and a whole load of other 
occupations which also exist in the public sector let's be clear they're not the only people we're talking about then these people had real value as well now of course there's waste in every public sector the same as there's waste in every private sector organization because we're human beings we're flawed we're imperfect we make mistakes um, and sometimes we do a bit of empire building as well and yeah none of that's very useful but the reality is the level of waste in public sector organizations is no higher and might well be lower um, than in private sector organizations, in my opinion, because boy, I've seen some appalling private sector organizations in my time and had to turn them around and save them from their managers in most cases. I've done that more than a few times. And this is what's required now. And yet what's the answer to everything according to our dear beloved leaders, um, who are all of the right wing and believers in neoliberalism? Let's have some more of the market. No, I don't want more market. I actually want more state. Thank you very much. Sorry, I actually do genuinely want more state. And I want more experts to actually work in state organizations to direct resources to where they're needed without actually having to have a price tag attached to it to tell me where we're going. Because actually, they don't need a price tag to be able to work out what's required. I can tell you what's required right now. We need a Green New Deal. We need flood defences in the UK and other places. We need new housing. We need lots of new housing. Um, and it has to be affordable housing. We need to deal with childcare. We need to deal with people's um, costs of literally getting an education. We need to deal with all the sorts of crises that we d- which affect ordinary people. We need to cut interest rates. And, and, the, all and, of the, mar- and the market won't deal with any of those. None of those. Uh, without a, a clear steer and guidance from the state none of those issues are going to be solved and yet we still have politicians telling us just rely on the market and we are crippled by that i need to i need to bring this in a short short diversion for you a short tangent slight tangent where we say to you i don't know if you're aware uh, recently whereby you know so quilcha is the is the is the state's organization in ireland that that organizes our forests okay yeah 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 I mean, and what we're off, we're we're outsourcing, uh, we're selling them effectively to a British uh, fund manager to so they can privatize our woodlands. Uh, uh, and you're just thinking, you know, when you want, if you really wanted to be serious about uh, what we're trying to talk about, when you mentioned something like the Green New Deal, I mean, like if if let's say this was a a money maker. Let's say, let's just say, I had I had woodland, and it was a, it was a it was a money maker, and I want to flip it. Surely this goes to something like where you talk about. Well, actually, that's a sovereign wealth fund in the making. That's a, something that we create a, a, a common interest of. This is where we the state steps in. But no, the answer has to be international finance, and let's see what we can do uh, in terms of making a profit out of this or or or, or return that. And we don't eat, and we don't benefit from it in the long term. So that kind of if we can't get that right, how can we get serious about actually the the, the housing projects that we need on both islands? We have a huge housing Ooh. price. Crisis. Yeah, I know. And uh, and on 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 dealing moving to renewables it, because I have my big fear, and it remains my big fear, is that when we do move to renewables in Ireland, and we will, they will build it, they will build wind turbines, they'll build offshore. But they will be owned by some Canadian pension fund, and we won't own the infrastructure. And that is my big big fear. Well, you mentioned Canadian pension funds, and I'd actually already got those in mind. So you read my mind, literally, because I was going to talk about our water system. Mm. Yeah, In the UK, uh, in England, water is privatised. In Wales, it is still government-owned. And in Scotland, it's slightly complicated, but it's more government than not. So we have different systems in the different countries. But in England, it's privatised. 
And the biggest fund uh, owner of, I think, water in England now is Canadian pension funds. And if you don't mind me saying so, I don't think they give a shit um, about who actually has water. Sorry, that was a glaringly obvious one to say. But, you know, water means sewage as well. And unsurprisingly, they're maximising their return. Um, Our railways are very largely run by nationalised industries in the UK. It's just that the nationalised industries in question are the railway companies of Germany and France. Um, our who, 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 don't, who, don't, who don't allow that to happen in their countries? No, the but they can run railways in the UK for profit. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have some pretty massive, um, I mean, I'm on the east coast of the UK and we have some pretty massive wind farms out uh, offshore here. Now, I don't take any objection to those and I'm a bird watcher. I like wildlife and I like scenery and everything else. I actually rather like wind turbines. There's something rather comforting about them, I think. Um, but I don't care that they're there, but who owns them? Well, Denmark more than anybody else. Um, why? Because they've got the technology, they bothered to invest and so on. It's ludicrous. Everyone, it's not only is it, is it the private sector have got the answers, but it's the private sector elsewhere who've got the answers. And you always wonder how many chains of command there are in between, in particular, how many companies that are diverting profit in between. Because that profit is going to be diverted to Denmark. Why wouldn't it be? That's where they are owned. They're not going to want to declare it any more than they have to in the UK and pay any more tax than they should in the UK, because that's what their owners will want. And that's always been the way it's worked. And so, you know, we're just being stripped of assets all round still. And this makes no sense at all. And the opportunities to change this are what, frankly, serious politicians should be talking about. But it's not even on their agendas. They're talking about, oh, you can have a referral from me by yourself to a G, to a consultant in the NHS if you want, if you've got internal bleeding, and you'll be dead before you get there. You know, oh, they're so ignorant. I mean, I hate to say it, but I'm getting really angry about the level of ignorance. Who do they talk to? Who are they getting advice from? I mean, I know some several quite prominent US economists, and we get involved in chats, and I'm not going to name them because that would be unfair. But these people are well known. And one sent me a Twitter direct message. Uh, I think it was last week. And uh, again, I'm going to use the phrase WTF because I think that's what the person in question said. Um, who's advising Labour? And what are they doing? Because it's just unbelievable in our mutual opinion that they can be talking about what they are. Um, it is so ignorant and so dangerous for a country that needs radical transformation. And we all need radical transformation because you know, the neoliberal era reflected a time when we thought we could abuse the planet. And now we live in an era when we can't abuse the planet. We realise that there are no free gifts of nature. There's a fundamental shift required in our economic thinking. Um, you know, this is a Kuhnian paradigm shift. If I'm going to go into um, sort of academic jargon sort of style stuff here, Kuhnian paradigm shift. Kuhn thought like, the idea up paradigm shift. Literally, the world looks different now from what it did before. Um, that's mm-hmm. all I'm really saying. And this is a massive demand for rethink of how we organise the economy, and that demand is not being met. And I don't see, think it's being met anywhere seriously. It's certainly not being met by anything I see in Irish politics. No. Um, and but, I don't but, but, see that here. But, I mean, and, and including the opposition parties, the ones who have the opportunity to influence debate. I mean, I don't see you, you, yeah, Sinn not- really running this either. No, neither do I, and I have a big. I'm very skeptical about where they want to move, or will they just rush to the, to to you know put a new suit on the same on the same turd? Well, basically. that's my fear. But, 
Yeah, I, but 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 like I mean, I look at I look at Spain for example, and Spain has been has not had, had a great economy for years and years and years, and yet they've managed to um, because of their their ado- early adopters of renewables, of their ability to to take the actual standard basket of goods that people need, they've managed to say, well, actually, the least impacted by inflation because of these simple. Yeah, steps. they have done well. And you know, Portugal's you, done well, by the way. Remember, I, Portugal I, is a I, good example. I, I, I had, I had the deputy vice leader of of this of the socialist the Partido Socialista, who's the party in government the last number of years from Portugal. João Pina joined me again last week, and he was laughing because they're doing so well, yet they're already uh, at each other's throats. There's another cabinet reshuffle, and he's, you know, <laughs> and he, and and I let listeners behind the behind the curtain for a moment. He said before we came on, he said, "Hi, Tony, João Pina from the people's uh, the the Judeans people front, not the people's front of Judea." <laughs> so he and that was is well again, up, yeah, so typical of the left, but also, right. I mean, they they have believed in the state when they had to and they had no choice but do it really because portugal was in a mess and it's an interesting case of how they dealt with the whole pressure in a way that ireland didn't um Mm -hmm. with regard to the fact that they were of course um one one of the the, states that needed real support um and they were had supposed austerity imposed on them and they dealt with it and they managed it and they've done a transformation which is really to be looked at and probably to be used as a case study i should probably know more about it but they're an obvious example 38 percent increase in 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 the living wage like Stuff people wouldn't dream of in, 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 and we, you know, we're, we're fighting here now with saying, actually, we haven't kept pace and where it needs to be. No one is arguing that Portugal is a socialist utopia, but we're saying the steps that they've gone from in like, uh, you know, during the, when they were one of the unfortunate pigs, if you remember that phrase. Yes, I do remember. I wonder what I could use the term or not, but it obviously was there. We're yeah, thinking very much on the same line here. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. that was it. Like, and, and we had to we, we had to suck that up and and put up with it. And yet, Portugal said we'll actually we'll invest in this. And we've seen that actually. I think the Economist uh, this in December picked them to be the stars of twenty twenty three in terms of of what they're expecting from them. That's if they can stop tearing lumps off one another within within government. But nonetheless, um, I Richard, but I go I, back I, to that thing if I can that Keynes yes. said that we can afford anything we can actually do because what some politicians and i think the portuguese did this they realized that if you pay people a bigger living wage they go and spend it yeah because if you give a tax cut to the wealthy and i don't know whether we've covered this ground before we might have done on the but it, it's but it's worth repeating if you give a tax cut to the wealthy they just save it or they put it in the cayman islands either way the money's out of circulation almost immediately if you give money to those who actually can only just make ends meet or even can't make ends meet, and that's true in the UK of anybody on 30 grand or less a year, um, just you know, so hard to make ends meet. If you've got a family, God knows. Um, unfortunately, I don't face that crisis, but I know vast numbers of people do. Now, if you give them money, they will spend every penny of it. That's after, of course, you've taken some tax off it. So first of all, this is the absurd thing about the pay rises we're talking about. The government says it can't afford to pay a 10% pay rise to nurses. If it gives a 10% pay rise to nurses, on average, it'll get 40% of that back straight away in tax and national insurance, employers and employers, national insurance plus taxes. So the money already, 40% of the pay rise is funded by the nurses themselves. They are going to fund a large part of it. 
they're going to spend every penny they get out of that money because most of them will have families and mortgages and goodness what else. The money's going to go straight into circulation. That 60% they spend is going to go to somebody who's going to pay VAT on it, who's going to then pay tax on whatever's left over before they spend some of it, of course, after that. And that's going to go to the next person who's going to pay VAT and down the taxes, blah, blah, blah. In fact, if you actually spend money in the NHS in the UK, the likelihood is you get more money back in tax than you spend. And that's been proved time and again. It's called a multiplier effect. And yet these people don't seem to understand that. I've never heard any UK politician say, well, look, you you have to understand when people ask the question and every journalist does, how are you going to pay for it? The nurses are going to pay for part of their pay rise. And then the people they spend their money with are going to help pay part of the pay rise. And then the people they spend money with to help pay until we actually get all our money back. What are you worried about? And that's what Portugal realised. Increase minimum pay and the economy will grow. I, I'll give you one real... Kill by it. It's going to yeah, grow I, because I, of it. Portugal have, have, has... So they've also, like everyone else, they face these challenges. One of the things they discovered in the last couple of years was they, um, with the increase in uh, living standards, obviously rents were increasing. So they said, okay, we need to do something. They also so they dipped their toe in the market like we did with the with the real estate investment trusts. But they're but so what they've selected for this year is a project to build. I think it's something like fifty thousand student accommodation units that will be owned by the state. Now up the road from me, there's a private one owned by yet again another pension fund student accommodation unit paying huge money to this. And but the idea was obviously that that will then free up in the actual rental market for affordable rentals and, and the rest of it. And I just thought to myself, going, wow, so the state are doing this. And he went, yeah, we're, we're going to do this. And I, I went, oh, so we don't have to have it owned by a um, Blackstone or a BlackRock or or one of these companies that are now currently, you know, uh, up to their oxers in, in, in the financialization of property. Can I really want to bring to an end? Here's, my, here's, a, here's a couple of things. I didn't think I was going to go there, but 2023, interest rates, do you think they're going to continue to rise into the into the first half of the year and maybe into the second? Oh, there's going to be a massive conflict over this. I think the central bankers are going to try and push them up. Um, the UK has made it clear. Hugh Pill, the chief economist of the Bank of England, has made it clear he wants to push them up. Um, the Fed wants to push up in the States, despite the fact that inflation is obviously tumbling in the States mm-hmm. and it's going to carry on tumbling. And Christine Lagarde at the ECB says that she thinks that we haven't got them to where they need to go yet to beat inflation. So um, the idiots are in charge of the asylum. Um, and it's not a great phrase in some ways. But actually, in this case, I think it is because we have central bankers who are literally divorced from the reality of the world. So we'll call them the people in the asylum. And I'm afraid they're idiots. Um, and they really do not understand what's happening in the real world and that what they're doing is actually crushing economies and real people. So I fear they're going to put home interest rates even though they don't need to. And in fact, the only thing we need now are interest rates to begin to come down and come down quite fast. So that's my well, great ba- concern. The, the, and the let bank, me tell the you bankers- why they're going to... Can I just tell you why they're going to go up in the UK? This is not quite so true in Europe, but it could be. All the central bankers have become obsessed with this thing called quantitative tightening. And that involves selling off the bonds they bought under the quantitative easing program, which was what funded the COVID crisis and the bailing out of banks and everybody else in 2008. They now want to sell all those bonds back. 
And the only way they can persuade people to buy those bonds is to offer a very high rate of interest on them. So they're actually going to be trying to keep interest rates up at enormous levels, which are going to destroy real people's life chances just to uh, fulfill their own dream of selling on the bonds that they think they don't need to own. Not understanding that those bonds are, in fact, the money supply that keeps our economy going and which we need just to keep there because otherwise we have to force up private sector lending instead to make good the shortfall in money supply that their bond sales are going to make. Double whammy for the economy if they do this. High interest rates and a shortage of money supply. Recession, here we come. And that's what they're doing. So I'm afraid to say, I'd love to say they're falling, Tony. I have a horrible fear they're going up. And that to me uh, means that 2023 is going to be grim. I share your concern. I think there's at least two more uh, interest rate hike cycles before we maybe plateau. And they will want to plateau for a long time because, as you say, so just to put that in listeners, what they're trying to do is take that money out of the system. And when they want to take that money out of the system, it means that, you know, so if you're a homeowner with a mortgage or if you're paying an interest on, on anything, you're going to be, you're, you're, being, you're suffering on the outside. But if you're like, let's say you're looking for investment, and we've seen this already where we've seen in Dublin, planning permissions for these built-to-rent apartments, they're saying, well, we're not making them now. Because they're sitting there going, well, why could I? Why should I risk maybe a, a return on something when basically I can buy these bonds now if I'm an international fund and I can sit on my hands for 18 months? You might throw me a bit more and you might give me a tax break to actually start these rebuilding again. You know, we can leverage that and we can still make money by just simply opting into these T-bills or these bonds or whatever the, the, the facilities are. So it is actually quite a... Uh, it's a bad scenario for Joe Public, but again, the lads who tend to have the pile of money uh, are actually saying. Someone said. Someone said to me, "It was uh, yet another real estate um, boom is is around the corner because they will. There will governments who only think neoliberally, um, Richard, are going to think yet again. Well, maybe more tax incentives will help them. Maybe more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We need to give away yet more money to the already rich, as pension funds do, of course, as well. I've been writing about that recently. Um, we are going to have very real high interest rates for a long time. And since 2008, we've had real negative interest rates. In other words, it's actually paid you to borrow money because basically inflation has, surprisingly, because there's been inflation, but interest rates have been so low, you've actually been seeing your real cost of your borrowing actually being negative because it's being written off by inflation. That's not going to happen now because inflation is going to be negative potentially by 2024, but interest rates mm-hmm. are going to be very high. So very real high positive interest rates, which are crippling. It's really ghastly. And the very last thing then, and I, I'm sorry now, and I know you're conscious of time, so, but bear with me. That means all of this from why, because we missed it. We missed the boat on getting that cheap, that cheap money to start the Green New Deal that you talk about all the time. Does, so does this put this whole thing in Davos that's happening in the in the next few days on the never never because these lads are going to say well look we just don't have the money for it now they are going to say we haven't got the money for it they're going to say we can't do it because we've got to sell off the bonds that we already own we can't do quantitative easing again that was a trick that they will claim created inflation there's absolutely no evidence of that so they're going to say all these things I mean, it keeps on reminding me of something that George Osborne the Chancellor of the UK from 2010 to 2016 used to say. And that was, uh, Labour should have repaired the roof when the sun was shining. Actually, the sun shone 
all the time he was in office and he should have been spending because there were real negative interest rates for the government during that period. Money was so cheap they could have spent, spent, spent to actually deliver the transformation we needed. Now we know we need the transformation and the same party is delivering us incredibly high interest rates. The sun is no longer shining and the roof is definitely not being repaired. And so we're still stuffed, to use a technical term. Um, and they're now going to say, because we're stuffed, we can't do what we should have done when we didn't realise that low interest rates gave us the opportunity to do it. Um, it's as if they can actually turn anything about their own incompetence into an excuse for delivering more incompetence. I mean, it's literally they compound it. Um, yeah. Incompetence squared, perhaps we should call them or something. Well, uh, unfortunately, we're not immune from it on this island. And I do no. worry that we, we're going to see, like, I mean, eventually, eventually we have to have an honest conversation. Ireland is outperforming all of these all of these issues on the basis of four or five uh, major corporations that use us as a really effective tax avoidance system. <laughs> and that party's going to stop if, if, if others find themselves in negative, in, in negative. They're going to say, hang on, what's going on there? So we have to be honest about this and understand also whether it's morally right to do as well, because, you know, that's, the, we talk about nurses. I Again, we know what that means for other countries who can't fund services if they can't collect the taxes. That's just, yeah. that is the reality of this. Mm. Richard Murphy, thank you so much again for your time today. I, uh, people, read Richard's blogs, check him out on Twitter. The stuff is always, always on the zeitgeist and and giving it in a way that is easy to um, understand and actually then be able to break it down and, and you feel like you've learned something, but you also then maybe be a bit dispirited afterwards. So, uh, Sorry about so, that. <laughs> uh, but, but look, at least, at least it's the truth. At least it's the truth. Um, we're going to leave it there. We have got, um, I think we're going back to John Schwartz from The Intercept in the US in the next day or two. Hopefully John is going to join us if we can if we can get something in the diary. And I know we have, uh, actually here's a good one for you. We have Hugh O'Connell from Okulon is a housing cooperative and they're a not-for-profit developer. And they've built ha- homes, three-bedroom homes, A standard, passive rated for €220,000. It can be done. Don't you don't we don't need these developers that are telling us it'll cost three hundred and eighty five thousand. You is developing he's building them and they're passive standard. So, you know, let's get to people who have those solutions. Uh, th- thanks for again, Richard, and thanks for listening, folks, and we will talk to you all very, very soon. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people only. It's the Subscribe now on Patreon.